I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, But in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read... Uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. You know what's fun? Uh, Inside jokes. I have them with all sorts of people, including my daughters. Uh... Last weekend, uh, on Sunday, my the youngest of the two divorce cats passed away. It was a long process. I kept myself nearby that cat, always holding it, hugging it. Uh, she was too weak to stand or walk, so I had to hold her while she ate or went poop and that sort of thing. Uh, it was very sad, and it was drawn out, and it was long. And so eventually, I called a person to come to the house to euthanize her. And it was very sad, and uh, me and both my daughters were there during the process, and uh, we were all crying. But um, I kept crying. I like to blame it on the fact that I was so near the cat for four days, sleeping with it, holding it all the time, 24 hours a day, that kind of thing. Uh, But in reality, uh, I'm a giant baby. Uh, I have seen three, no, two, human people die in front of me, and... um, didn't affect me. Still ate a sandwich afterwards, moved on with my life, didn't bother me at all. But something about this cat got to me. Constantly crying. Crying while brushing my teeth. Crying while going to the bathroom. Crying while taking out the garbage. It was ridiculous. So, later, uh, I got a new job within the same company. Uh, I don't get to start it till the end of the month, but they have a spot for me to sit at. And I work from home, so... I start sitting at that spot, and it's fun. My coworkers are nice. Everything about it's great so far. I can't wait to officially be in my new team. But uh, in the meantime, I'm just there working on my old team stuff. Uh, my daughter kept saying, Hey, you gonna cry like a little bitch at your new job? Because I keep crying randomly while watching TV or, I don't know, who knows what, vacuuming. And so she goes, hey, when are you going to get your act together? You're going to be around other human people all day long. You can't cry in front of them. And so that's the fun of inside jokes. You get to just make fun of each other. And uh, But I haven't cried. Uh, I've gone to the new position. I'm sitting in the new desk. Uh, still working on the old stuff, but talking to the people. Uh, but not crying in front of them. And so every day when I pick my daughter up from school, she goes, hey, did you cry like a little bitch? In front of your new co-workers? And they say, no, god damn it, and fuck you. So, that's uh, Inside Jokes, I guess is the theme for this intro. It's a lot of fun. We're going to skip the uh, info about the author because uh, I'm reading a lot of chapters in this book and trying to find interesting tidbits about him 
for each chapter is getting pretty thin. Hey, he's from Canada. And uh, he writes this as a precursor to what we know as the Lake Wobegon from Garrison Keeler. That's kind of all you need to know. Uh, there's really nothing else about him. He just was an average guy. So, let's dive into Chapter 3. The Marine Excursions of the Knights of Pythias Half past six on a July morning, exclamation point, the Mariposa Bell is at the wharf, decked in flags, with steam up ready to start. Excursion day, exclamation point. Half past six on a July morning, and Lake Wissanati, lying in the sun as calm as grass. The opal colors of the morning light are shot from the surface of the water. Out on the lake, ah, the last thin threads of the mist are clearing away like flecks of cotton wool. The long call of the loon echoes over the lake. Uh, air is cool and fresh. There is in it all the new life of land and the silent pine and the moving waters. Lake Wissanati in the morning sunlight, exclamation point. Don't talk to me of uh, Italian lakes or the Tyrol of the Swiss Alps. Take them away. Move them somewhere else. I, I don't want them. Excursion day at half past six of a summer morning with the boat all decked in flags and all the people in Mariposa on the wharf and the band in peak caps with the big cornets tied to their bodies ready to play at any minute. I say, exclamation point, don't tell me uh, about the Carnival of Venice and uh, the Delhi Dunbar. Don't! Uh, exclamation point. I would look for them. I'd shut my eyes. There's a lot of exclamation points. For light and color, give me every time an excursion out of Mariposa down to the lake of the Indian's island out of sight in the morning mist. Talk of your uh, papal Zobas and your Buckingham Palace guard. I, I want to see Mariposa band in uniform and a Mariposa knights at Pythias with their aprons and their insignia and their picnic baskets and their five-cent cigars. <laughs> half past six in the morning and all the crowd on the wharf and the boat due to leave in half an hour. Notice it! Mm. In half an hour... Already, she's whistled twice at 6 and at 6.15. And at any minute now, Christy Johnson will step into the pilot house and pull the string for the warning whistle that the boat will leave in half an hour. So keep ready. Uh, don't think of running back to Smith's Hotel for the sandwiches. <laughs> don't fool enough to try to go up to the Greek store next to Netley's and buy fruit. You'll be left behind, if sure you do. Never mind the sandwiches and the fruit. Anyway... Here comes Mr. Smith himself with a huge basket of provender that would feed a factory. There must be sandwiches in that. I think I can hear them clinking. Ah, and behind Mr. Smith is the German waiter from the calf with another basket, indubitably lager beer. Ah, and behind him, the bartender of the hotel, carrying nothing, as far as we can see. But of course, if you know Mariposa... You will understand why he looks so nonchalant and empty-handed. It's because he has two bottles of rye whiskey under his linen duster. Ah, you know, I think. The particular walk of a man with two bottles of whiskey in the inside pockets of his linen coat. In Mariposa, you see, to bring beer eh, to an excursion is quite in keeping with uh, public opinion. But whiskey, eh, well, one has to be a little careful. Do I say that Mr. Smith here, why... 
Everyone's here. Eh, there's Hustle, the editor of the news packet, eh, wearing a blue ribbon on his coat. Ugh. For the Mariposa, Knights of the Pathias are, by their constitution, dedicated to temperance. And there's Henry Mullins, the manager of the Exchange Bank, also a Knight of Pathias with a small flask of Pogrom Special in his hip pocket as a sort of amendment to the constitution. And there's Dean Drone, the chaplain of the order with a fishing rod. Ah, you never saw such a green basses lie among the rocks at the Indian's Island, and uh, with a trolling line in case of m- maskinage. Eh, well, whatever. I'm not looking that up. And a landing net in case of pickerel. Eh, these are fish. And his eldest daughter, Lillian Drone, in case of young men. Eh, there never was such a fisherman as Reverend Rupert Drone. Perhaps... I ought to explain that when I speak of the excursion as being of the Knights of Pathias, uh, the thing must not be understood in any narrow sense. In the Mariposa, practically everyone belongs to the Knight of uh, Pathias, uh, just as they do everything else. That's the great thing about the town, and that's what makes it so different from the city. Uh, everyone is in everything. You should see them on the 17th of March, for example, when everyone wears a green ribbon. And they're all laughing and glad. You know what the Celtic nature is and talking about home rule. On St. Andrew's Day, every man in town wears a thistle and shakes hands there with us. And you see the fine old Scotch honesty beaming out of their eyes. And on St. George's Day, well... There's no hardiness like the good old English spirit. Uh After all, why shouldn't a man feel glad that he's an Englishman? And then on the 4th of July, there are stars and stripes flying over half the stores in town. And suddenly all the men are seen to smoke cigars and to know all about Roosevelt and Brian and the Philippine Islands. And then you learn for the first time that eh, Jeff Thorpe's people yeah, it came from Massachusetts, and that his uncle fought at Bunker Hill. It must have been Bunker Hill. Anyway, Jefferson will swear it was in Dakota, all right enough. And you find that George Duff has married sister, uh, a sister in Rochester, and her husband is all right. In fact, George was down there as of recently, eight years ago. Oh, it's the most American town imaginable is Mariposa on the 4th of July. But wait, uh, just wait. If you feel anxious about the solidarity of the British connection, uh, till the 12th of the month when everybody is wearing an orange streamer in his coat and the orange men, uh, every man in town, walk in the big procession, allegiance. Uh, well, perhaps you remember the address they gave the Prince of Wales on the platform in the Mariposa station as he went through on tour of the West. I think that pretty well settled the question. So... You will easily understand that, of course, everybody belongs to the Knight of Pythias and the Masons and Oddfellows, just as they all belong to the eh, Snowshoe Club eh, and the Girls' Friendly Society. And meanwhile, eh, the whistle of the streamer is blown again for a quarter to seven, loud and long this time, for anyone not here now is late for certain. Unless he should happen to come down in the last 15 minutes, what a crowd upon the wharf and how they pile onto the streamer. It's a wonder that the boat can hold them all. Eh, but that's just the marvelous thing about the Mariposa Bell. Eh, I don't know. I've 
never known where streamers like Mariposa Bell come from, whether they are uh, uh, built by Harland and Woff at Belfast, or whether, on the other hand, that they are not built by Harland and Woff of Belfast is more than one would like to say offhand. Mariposa Bell has always seemed to me to have some sort of strange properties that distinguish Mariposa itself. I mean, her size seems to vary so. If you see her there in the winter, frozen in the ice beside the wharf with a snowdrift against the windows of the pilot house, she looks pathetic, a little thing, the size of a butternut. But in the summertime, especially after you've been in Mariposa for a month or two, and a paddle alongside of her in a, in a canoe. She gets larger and taller with a great sweep of black sides till you see no difference between the Mariposa Bell and the Lusitania. Each one is a big steamer, and that's all you can say. Nor do her measurements help you much. She draws about 18 inches forward and more than that, at least half an inch more uh, astern. And when she's loaded down with an excursion crowd, she draws a good two inches more. And above the water, why, look at all the decks on her. Ah, there's a deck you walk onto from the wharf, all shut in with windows along it. And after the cabin with the long table, and above the deck with all the chairs piled upon it, and the deck in front where the band stands around in a circle. And the pilot house is higher than that. And above the pilot house is the board with the gold name and the flagpole and the steel ropes and the flags. Yeah, fixing somewhere on the different levels is the lunch counter where they sell the sandwiches and the engine room. And down below the deck level beneath the water line is the place where the eh, crew sleep. Uh, what with steps and stairs and passages and piles of cordwood for the engine? Oh, no. I guess Harland and Wolf didn't build her. They couldn't have. Yet even with a huge boat like the Mariposa Bell, it would be impossible for her to carry all of the crowd that you see in the boat and on the wharf. In reality, uh, the crowd is made up of two classes. Uh, all the people of Mariposa who are going on excursion and all those who are not. Some eh, come for the one reason and some sort of the other. Two tellers of the exchange bank uh, are both there standing side by side, uh, but one of them. The one with the cameo pin and the long face like a horse is going. And the other with the other cameo pin and the face like another horse is not. In the same way, Hustle and the news packet is going, but his brother beside him isn't. Lillian Drone is going, uh, but her sister can't. And so on to all the crowd. And to think that things should look like that on the morning of a steamboat accident. Huh, strange life is, hmm. To think that all these people so eager and anxious to catch the steamer, and some of them running to catch it, and so fearful that they might miss it. Ah, the morning of a steamboat accident, and the captain blowing his whistle and warning them so severely that he would leave them behind. Leave them! Out of the accident! Okay, I get it that an accident is going to happen. And everybody crowding so eagerly to be in the accident. Perhaps life is like that all through. Strangest of all to think, in a case like this, of the people who were left behind, or in some way or another prevented from going, and always afterwards, told of how they had escaped being on board the Mariposa Bell that day. 
Some of the instances were certainly extraordinary. Nivens had a lawyer escape from being there merely by the fact that he was away in the city. Towers, the tailor, only escaped owing to the fact that, not intending to go on the excursion, he had stayed in bed till 8 o'clock, and so had not gone. He narrated afterwards that, walking up that morning at half past five, he had thought of the excursion, and for some unaccountable reason, had felt glad that he was not going. The case of Yodel, eh, the auctioneer, was even more inscrutable. He had been the odd fellow's excursion on the train that week before, and to the conservative picnic that week before that, and decided not to go on this trip. In fact, eh, he had not the least intention of going. He narrated afterwards how the night before someone had stopped him on the corner of Nippa and uh, Takuma eh, streets, and indicated the very spot, and asked, uh, uh, are you going to take the excursion tomorrow? And he had said, just as simply as he was talking and when narrating it, uh, no. And then ten minutes after that, at the corners of Deluise and Brock Streets, he offered to lead a party of verification to the precise place. Uh, somebody else had stopped and asked, uh, are you going to go to the steamer trip tomorrow? Again, he answered, uh, No. Apparently almost in the same tone as before. He said afterwards that when he heard the rumor of the accident, it seemed like the finger of providence had fell on his knees in thankfulness. There was the similar case of Morrison. I mean, one of in Glover's hardware store that married one of the Thompsons. He said afterwards that he had read so much in the papers about the accidents, and lately mining accidents and aeroplanes and gasoline, that he had grown nervous. The night before, his wife had asked uh, him at the supper, Hey, you gonna go to the excursion? He answered, eh, No, I don't think I feel like it. And he added, Perhaps your uh, mother uh, might like to go. Uh. And the next evening, just at dusk, when the news ran through the town, he said the first thought was that it flashed through his head was, hey, Mrs. Thompson is on the boat. He told this, right as I say it, without the least doubt of confusion. He never for a moment imagined that he was on the Lusitania or the Olympic or any other boat. He knew that he was on this one. He said you could have knocked him down where he stood, but no one had. Not even when he got halfway down... On his knees, it would have been easier still to knock him down or kick him. People do miss a lot of chances. Still, as I say, neither Yodel nor Morrison or anyone thought about there being an accident until just after sundown when they... Well, have you ever heard the long, booming whistle of a steamboat two miles on the lake in the dusk? And while you listen and count and wonder, seen the crimson rockets going up against the sky and... Then heard the fire bell ringing right there beside you in town. And seen the people running to the town wharf. That's what the people of Mariposa saw and felt that summer evening as they watched the Mackinac and the lifeboat go plunging into the lake with seven sweeps to a side and the foam clear to the gunwale with a lifting stroke of 14 men! Exclamation point. Ah, uh, but dear me, I'm afraid that this is no way to tell a story. I suppose the true art would have been to have said nothing about the accident till it happened. Uh, which, yeah, gave the whole thing away right there. But when you write about Mariposa or hear of it, if you know the place, it's all so vivid and real that a thing like the contrast between the excursion crowd in the morning and the scene at night leaps into your mind and you must think of it. But never mind about the accident. 
Eh, let's turn back again in the morning. Eh, the boat was due to leave at seven. There was no doubt about the hour, only that seven, eh, but seven sharp. The notice of the news packet said, uh, the boat will leave at seven sharp. And the advertising posters on the telegraph poles of the uh, Missanaba Street that began, Ho! for India's Island, ended up with the words, uh, Boat leaves at seven sharp. But there was a big notice on the wharf that said, uh, Boat leaves at seven sharp. So at seven, right on the hour, the whistle blew loud and long, and then at 7.15, three short promptory blasts, And at 7.30, one quick angry call. Just one. And very soon after that, they cast off the last of the ropes and the Mariposa Bell sailed off in her cloud of flags. And the band of the Knights of Pythias, timing it uh, to a nicety, broke into the uh, Maple Leaf Forever, in quotes. I suppose that all excursions, uh, when they start, are much the same. Anyway, on the Mariposa Bell, everyone went running up and down all over the boat with deck chairs and camp stools and baskets and found places, eh, splendid places to sit, and then got scared that there might be a better one and chased off again. People eh, hunted her places out of the sun, and when they got them, swore that they weren't going to freeze to please anybody, and the people in the sun said that they didn't hadn't paid 50 cents to be roasted. Others said that they had paid 50 cents to get covered with cinders, and there were still others who uh, hadn't paid 50 cents to get shaken to death of the propeller. Still, it was all right presently. The people seemed to get sorted out into the places on the boat where they belonged. The women, eh, the older ones, all gravitated into the cabin on the lower deck, and by getting round the table with needlework, and with all the windows shut, they soon had it, as they said themselves, just like being at home. All the young boys, and the toughs, and the men in the band got down to the lower deck afterward, where the boat was dirtiest, and where the anchor was, and the coils of rope, and upstairs on the after deck were Lillian Drone and Miss Lawson, a high school teacher with a book of German poetry, uh, Gothi, I think it was, and the bank teller and the younger men. In the center, standing beside the rail, was Dean Drone and Dr. Gallier, looking through binocular glasses at the shore. Up in front, on the little deck afterward of the pilot house, was a group of the older men, Mullins and Duff, and uh, Mr. Smith in a deck chair. Beside them, eh, Mr. Galagatha Gingham, the undertaker of Bariposa, eh, on a stool. It was part of the Mr. Gingham's principles to take in an outing of this sort of business matter, more or less, for you never know what may happen at these water parties. Eh. At any rate, there was a neat suit of black, not, of course, this heavier professional suit, but a soft, clingy effect as a burnt paper. Uh, that combined gaiety and decorum to a nicety. Yes, uh, Mr. Gingham waving his black glove in a general way toward the shore. I know, well, uh, the lake uh, very well. I've been pretty much all over it in my time. Uh, Canoeing? asked somebody. Uh, No, said Mr. Gingham. Not a canoe. This seemed to be a particular and quiet meaning in his tone. Is sailing, I suppose, said somebody else. No, said Mr. Gingham, I don't understand it. I never know 
"'Well, you went out of the water at all, Gall,' said Mr. Smith, breaking in. "'Ah, not now,' explained Mr. Gingham. "'It was years ago, the first summer I came to Mariposa. "'I was on the water practically all day. "'Nothing like it gave a man an appetite and kept him in shape. "'Was it camping?' asked Mr. Smith. "'Oh, we camped all night,' assented the undertaker. "'But we... "'Put in practically the whole day on the water. "'Oh, you see, we were after a party that had come up here from the city on vacation "'and gone on a sailing canoe. "'We were dragging. Uh, "'We were up every morning at sunrise, lit a fire on the beach and cooked breakfast, "'and then we'd light our pipes and be off uh, with the net for a whole day. Uh, "'It's a great life,' concluded Mr. Gingham wistfully. Uh, "'Did you get him?' asked two or three together. Yeah, there was a pause before Mr. Gingham answered. We did, he said, down in the reeds past Horseshoe Point. But it was no use. He turned blue on me right away. After which, Mr. Gingham fell into such a deep reverie that the boat had steamed another half mile down the lake before anybody broke the silence again. Uh, talk of this sort, and after all, what more suitable uh, for a day on the water beguiled the way. Down the lake, mile by mile over the calm water, steamed the Mariposa Bell. They passed Poplar Point, uh, where the high sandbanks are, with all the swallows' nests in them, and Dean Drone and Dr. Gallagher looked at them alternately through the binocular glasses, and it was wonderful how plainly one could see the swallows and the banks and the shrubs, just as plainly as with the naked eye. And a little further down, they passed the Shingle Beach. And Dr. Gallagher, who knew Canadian history, said to Dean Drone that it was strange to think that Champlain had landed there with his French explorers 300 years ago. And Dean Drone, who didn't know Canadian history, said it was stranger still uh, to think that the hand of the Almighty had piled up the hills and rocks along before that. And Dr. Gallagher said that it was wonderful how the French had found their way through such a pathless wilderness, and Dean Drone said that it was wonderful also to think that the Almighty had placed even the smallest shrub in his appointed place. Dr. Gallagher said it filled him with admiration. Dean Drone said it filled him with awe. Dr. Gallagher said that he'd been full of it ever since he was a boy, and Dean Drone said uh, so had he. Then a little farther... As the Mariposa Bells steamed down the lake, they passed an old Indian portage where the great gray rocks are, and Dr. Gallagher threw Dean Drone's attention to the place where the narrow canoe track wound up from the shore to the woods. And Dean Drone said he could see it perfectly well without the glasses. Dr. Gallagher said that it was just there that a party of 500 French had made their way with all their baggage in their accoutrements across the rocks of the divide, and down to the Great Bay, and Dean Drone said that it reminded him of Zephion leading his 10,000 Greeks over the hill passes of Armenia down to the sea. Dr. Gallagher said the, he had often wished he could have seen and spoken to the chaplain, and Dean Drone said how much he regretted to have never known Zephion. 
And then after that, they fell to talking of relics and traces of the past. And Dr. Gallagher said that if Dean Drone would have come round to his house some night, he would show him ah, some of the Indian arrowheads he had dug up in his garden. And Dean Drone said that if Dr. Gallagher would come round the rectory any afternoon, he would show him a max, uh, map of Xerxes' invasion of Greece. Uh, only he must come sometime between the infant class and the mother's auxiliary. So, presently, they both knew that uh, they were blocked out of one another's houses for some time to come, and Dr. Gallagher walked forward and told Mr. Smith, who had never studied Greek, uh, about Chaplin crossing the rock divide. Mr. Smith, who turned his head and looked at the divide for half a second, and then said he had crossed a worse one up north, back of the Wapanati and that his flies were Hades, and then he went on playing freeze-out poker with the two juniors in Duff's Bank. So Dr. Gallagher realized, and that's was always the way when you try to tell people things, yeah, that as far as gratitude and appreciation goes, one might as well never read books or travel anywhere or do anything. In fact, it was at this very moment that he made up his mind to give the arrows to the Mariposa Mechanics Institute. They afterwards became, as you know, the Gallagher's collection. But for the time being, the doctor was sick of them and wandered off around the boat and watched Henry Mullins showing George Duff how to make a Joan Collins without lemons and finally went and sat down among the Mariposa band and wished that he hadn't come. So the boat steamed on, and the sun rose higher and higher, and the freshness of the morning changed into a full glare at noon, and they went on to where the lake began to narrow at its foot, just where the Indian's island is, all grass and trees, with a log wharf running into the water. Below it, the lower Osawippi runs out of the lake, and quite near are the rapids. And you can see down among the trees the red brick of the powerhouse. Uh, hear the roar of the leaping water. The Indian's island itself is all covered with trees and tangled vines. And the water about it is so still that it all reflects double and looks like it either way is up. But when the steamer's whistle blows as it comes into the wharf, you hear the echo among the trees of the island and reverberate back to the shores of the lake. The scene is... All so quiet and still and unbroken that Miss Cleghorn, the sallow girl in the telephone exchange that I spoke of, uh, she said that she'd like to be buried there. Uh, but all the people were so busy getting their baskets and gathering up their things that no one had time to attend to it. I mustn't even try to describe uh, the landing, that the boat was crunching against the wooden wharf and all the people running to the same side of the deck as the Christy Johnson calling out the crowd uh, to keep the starboard and nobody being able to find it. Everyone who has been in a Mariposa excursion knows all about that. Nor can I describe the day itself and the picnic under the trees. There were speeches afterwards. Ah, and the judge Pepperley gave such an offense by bringing in a conservative politics that a man called uh, Petraeus Candidesis wrote and asked for some of the invaluable space of the Mariposa Times-Herald and exposed it. I should say that there were races too. The grass on open side of the island uh, graded mostly according to the 
ages, races for boys uh, under 13 and girls over 19, and all sorts of things. Sports are generally conducted on that plane of Mariposa. It is realized that a woman of 60 has an unfair advantage over a mere child. Dean Drone uh, managed the races and decided the ages and gave out the prizes, and Wesleyan Minister helped, and... Uh, he and the young student who was relieving the Presbyterian church held the string at the winning point. They had to get mostly clergymen for the races because all the men had wandered off somehow to where they were drinking lager beer out of uh, two kegs stuck on pine logs among the trees. But if you ever been on a Mariposa excursion, you know all about these details anyway. So the day wore on, and presently the sun came through the trees on a slant, and the steamer whistle blew with a great puff of white steam, and all the people came straggling down to the wharf, and pretty soon the Mariposa Bell had floated out into the lake again and headed for town. Twenty miles away, I suppose you have often noticed the contrast there is between an excursion on its way out in the morning and what it looks like on the way home. In the morning, everyone is so restless and animated and moves to and fro all over the boat and asks questions. But coming home as the afternoon gets later and the sun sinks beyond the hills, the people seem to get so still and quiet and drowsy. So it was with the people on the Mariposa Bell. They sat there on the benches and the deck chairs and little clusters and listened to the regular beat of the propeller and almost dozed off to sleep as they sat. Then, when the sun set and the dusk drew on, it grew almost dark in the deck, and so still you could hardly tell there was anyone on board. And if you looked at the steamer from the shore or from one of the islands, you'd have seen the row of lights from the cabin windows shining on the water, the red glare of the burning hemlock from the funnel, and you'd have heard the soft thud of the propeller miles away over the lake. Now and then, too, you could have heard them singing on the steamer, the voices of the girls and the men, blended into unison by the distance, rising and falling in the long-drawn melody, Oh, Canada, oh, Canada. You may talk as you will about the intoning choirs of your European cathedrals, but the sound of O Canada, born across the waters of a silent lake at evening, is good enough for those of us who know Mariposa. I think eh, that it was just as they were singing this, eh, O Canada, that word went round that the boat was sinking. And if you've ever been in any sudden emergency of the water, you will understand the strange philosophy of it. Uh, the, the way in which the happening seems to become known all in a moment without a word being said. The news is transmitted from one to the other by some mysterious process. At any rate, on the Mariposa Bell, first one, then the other heard that the streamer, the steamer was sinking. As far as I could ever learn, the first of it was that George Duff, uh, the bank manager, came very quietly to Dr. Gallagher and asked him if he thought the boat was sinking. The doctor eh, said no. That he thought it was so earlier in the day was that he didn't know, uh, think it was. Uh, after death, according to his own account, he said that Mr. McCartney, the lawyer, that the boat was sinking, and McCartney said that he doubted it very much. And somebody came to the judge, Pepperleigh, and woke him up and said that there was six inches of water in the steamer and that 
uh, that she was sinking, and Pepperlay said it was perfect, scandal, and passed the news on to his wife. And she said that they had no business to allow it, and that if the steamer sank, that it was the last excursion she'd go on. So the news went all around the boat, and everywhere the people gathered in groups and talked about it in the angry and excited way that people have when a steamer is sinking on one of the lakes, like Lake Wissanati. Uh, Dean Drone, of course, and some others were quieter about it, and said that, one must make allowances, and then naturally there were two sides to everything. But most of them wouldn't listen to reason at all. I think perhaps that some of them were eh, frightened. Yeah, you see, the last time, uh, but one of the steamer had sucked, there had been a man drowned, and it made them nervous. Yeah, what? Uh, hadn't I explained about the depth of uh, Lake Wissanati? Uh, I had taken it for granted that you knew. And in any case, uh, parts of it are deep enough. Though I don't suppose in this stretch of it, from the big reed beds up to the within a mile of the town wharf, you could find six feet of water in it if you tried. Ah, pshaw. Yeah, it was not. Talking about a steamer sinking in the ocean and carrying down its screaming crowds of people into hideous depths of green water. Oh, dear me, no. That kind of thing never happens on Lake Wissanati. But what does happen is that the Mariposa Bell sinks every now and then and sticks there on the bottom till they get things straightened up. And the lakes around Mariposa, if a person arrives late anywhere and explains that the steamer sank, everyone understands the situation. You see, when Harlan and Wolf built the Mariposa Bell, they left some cracks in between the timbers that you could fill up with cotton waste every Sunday. If this is not attended to, the boat sinks. In fact, it is part of the law of providence that all the steamers like Mariposa Bell must be properly corked. Yeah, I think that if the word, every season. There are inspectors who visit all the hotels in the province to see that it's done. So, you can imagine now that I've explained it a little straighter. The indignation of the people when they knew that the board had the boat had become uncorked and that they might be stuck out there in a shoal in a mud bank in half the night. I don't say either that there wasn't any danger anyway. It doesn't feel very safe when you realize that the boat is settling down with every hundred yards she goes and you look over the side and see only the black water in the gathering night. Safe! Exclamation point. I'm not sure uh, now that I come to think of it, that it was worse than sinking the Atlantic. After all, in the Atlantic, there is wireless telegraphy. Telegraphy. Telegraph. E. Uh, and a lot of trained sailors and stewards. But out on Lake Wissanati, far out, so you can only just see the lights of the town, way off in the south. When the propeller comes to a stop, and you can hear the hiss of the steam as they start to rake out the engine fires to prevent explosion... And when you turn from the red glare that comes from the furnace doors as they open them to the black dark that is gathering over the lake and there's a night wind beginning to run among the rushes and you see the men going forward to the roof of the pilot house to send up the rockets to rouse the town. Safe? Eh, safe yourself if you, if you like. As for me, let me once get back into Mariposa again under the night shadow of the maple trees. And this shall be the last, last time I'll go on Lake Wissanati. Safe? Exclamation point. Oh, yes. Isn't it strange how safe other people's adventures seem after they happen? 
but you'd have been scared too if you'd been there just before the steamer sank and then seen them bringing up all the women to the top deck. I don't see how some of the people took it so calmly, how Mr. Smith, for instance, could have gone on smoking and telling how he had a steamer sink on him and Lake uh, Nipissing and a still bigger one, a sidewheeler sink on him and Lake Abinati, Abitivity, Abitivity, A-B-B-I-T-I-B-B-I, whatever that is. Then, quite suddenly, with a quiver, down she went. You could feel the boat sink, sink down, down. It would never get to the bottom, and the water came flush up to the lower deck, and then, thank heaven, the sinking stopped there. Was the Mariposa Bell safe and tight on the reed bank? Uh, Really, it made one positively laugh. It seems so queer, and anyway, if a man was a sort of natural courage, danger makes him laugh. Danger? Pshaw. Fiddlesticks. <laughs> Everyone scouted the idea. Why, it was just the little things like this that give zest to a day on the water. Within half a minute, they were all running around looking for sandwiches, cracking jokes, and talking and making coffee over the remains of the the engine fires. I don't need to tell at length how it all happened after that. I suppose the people of Mariposa Bell would have had to settle down there all night or till help came from town. But some of the men who had gone forward were peering out of the dark and said it couldn't be more than a mile across the water to Miller's Point. Yeah, you could almost see it over there to the left. Some of them, I think, said, Off to the port bow. Because, you know, when you get mixed up in these marine disasters, you seem to catch uh, the atmosphere of the thing. So pretty soon, uh, they had the davits swung out over the side, or the lowering the old lifeboat from the top deck to the water. There were men yeah, leaning out over the rail of the Mariposa Bell with lanterns that threw the light as they let her down. The glare fell in the water and the reeds. But when they got to the boat lowered, it looked such a frail, clumsy thing, as one saw it from the rail above, that the cry was raised, uh, Women and children first! For, uh, what was the sense, if it should turn out that the boat wouldn't even hold women and children, if trying to jam a lot of heavy men into it, so they put in mostly women and children, and the boat pushed out into the darkness, so it freighted down, and uh, it would hardly float. In the bow of it, it was the Presbyterian student who was relieving the minister, and he called out that they were in the hands of Providence. But he was crouched and ready to spring out of them at a first moment. So the boat went and was lost in the darkness, except for the lantern and the bow that you could see bobbing on the water. Then presently it came back, and, and they sent another load. Till pretty soon, the decks began to thin out, and everyone got impatient to be gone. It was about the time that the third boat load put off that Mr. Smith took a bet with Mullins for $25 that he'd be home in Mariposa before the people in the boats had walked around the shore. No one knew just what he meant, but pretty soon they saw Mr. Smith disappear down below the lowest part of the steamer with a mallet in one hand and a big bundle of marlene in the other. They might have wondered more about it, but it was just this time when they heard the shouts from the rescue boat, the big Mackinac lifeboat, they put on the town with the 14 men in the sweeps that they saw uh, the first rockets go up. I suppose uh, there's always something inspiring about a rescue at sea or on the water. After all, the bravery of the lifeboat man is a true bravery. It expended uh, to save a life, not to destroy it. 
Certainly, they told for months after how the rescue boat came out to the Mariposa Bell. I suppose that uh, when they put her in the water, the lifeboat touched it for the first time since old McDonald government placed her on the lake with Sonati. Anyway, the water poured in at every scene. But not for a moment, even with two miles of water between them and the steamer, did the rowers pause for that. By the time they were halfway there, the water was almost up on the thwarts. But they drove her on, panting and exhausted. Yeah, for mind you, if you haven't been in a full boat like that for years, rowing takes it out of you. Yeah, the rowers stuck to their tests. They threw the ballast over and chucked into the water the heavy cork jackets and light belts that encumbered their movements. There was no thought of turning back. They were nearer to the steamer than the shore. Hang to it, boys, called the crowd from the steamer's deck, and hang they did. They were almost exhausted uh, when they got them, men leaning from the steamer through the ropes, and one by one every man was hauled aboard just as the lifeboat sank under their feet. Ah, uh, saved, by heaven's saved, by one of the smartest pieces of rescue work ever seen on the lake. There's no describing it. You need to see rescue work of this kind by lifeboats to understand it, nor were the lifeboat crew the only ones that distinguished themselves. Boat after boat, canoe after canoe, had put out from the Mariposa to help the steamer. Uh, they got them all. Pupkin, the other bank teller with a face like a horse, who hadn't gone on the excursion, as soon as he knew that the boat was signaling for help and that the little Miss Lawson was sending up rockets, rushed for a rowboat and yeah, grabbed an oar. That too would have hampered him and paddled madly into, out into the lake. He struck right out into the dark with a crazy skiff almost sinking beneath his feet. They got him. They rescued him. They watched him, almost dead with exhaustion, make his way out to the steamer where he was hauled up with ropes. Saved! Exclamation point. Saved! With two exclamation points. They might have gone on that way half the night, picking up the rescuers only at a very moment when the tenth load of people left for the shore, just as suddenly as uh, saucily as you might please, uh, up came the Mariposa Bell from the mud bottom and floated. In all caps, floated, exclamation point. Why, of course she did. If you take 150 people off a steamer that was sunk, and then you get a man as shrewd as Mr. Smith to plug the timber beams with a mallet and Marlene, and if you turn 10 bandsmen of the Mariposa band onto your hand pump on the bow of the lower decks, float? Uh, why, what else can she do? Then, if you stuff in a hemlock into the embers of the fire where you are raking out till it hums and crackles under the boiler, it won't be long before you hear the propeller thud, thudding at the stern again, and before the long roar of the steam whistle echoes over the town. And so the Mariposa Bell, with all steam up again, and with the long train of sparks uh, careering out of the funnel and heading into the town, but no, uh, Christy Johnson at the wheel of the pile of this house. Smith! Ah, get Smith, is the cry. Eh, can we take her in? Well, now, ask a man who has a steamer sink on him in half the lakes for Temiscamming to the bay. And if you could take her in, ah, ask a man who has run a York boat down the rapids of the moose when the ice is moving. If he can grip the steering wheel of the Mariposa Bell... 
Ah, so there she steams safe and sound into the town wharf. Hey, look at the lights and the crowd. If only the federal census taker could count us now. Hear them calling and shouting back and forward from the deck to the shore. Listen, there is a rattle of the shore ropes as they get them ready, and there's the Mariposa band, actually forming in a circle on the upper deck just as she docks, and the leader with his baton. One, two, ready now. Oh, Canada. Well, how do I tie this chapter in with the passing of my kitten? I can't. The ship was foreshadowed. Uh, inelegantly uh, to be sinking which you think everyone's going to die so it's going to be a horrible tragedy and everyone's going to cry all the time while they're brushing their teeth or going to work but actually everyone's okay and in the end uh, everyone's gleeful and cute and adorable and fun the entire time not me with my cat my cat is like a ship that sank and uh, it couldn't be fixed with cotton in the cracks uh, and stoking up the fire to get it back on the road again. Uh, my cat's just dead. So this chapter teaches us nothing to apply to our lives, except uh, in this cute, adorable little Lake Wobegon world that uh, he's created, uh, it, things are fine. You can have a, a tragedy like a sinking ship, and uh, the women and children go, and then eventually everyone goes, and in the end the ship goes back to shore, and the band's playing uh, a patriotic song. There was no patriotism when little tiny Tavy passed away. There was only tears. And the person that was euthanizing my cat uh, was really playing up the tears, uh, was asking us what our fondest memories of our cat was, and she, she even put the tiny little kitten in a basket with a blanket and made her look like she was resting with one little paw up near her face. And uh, that just sent us into more wails of crying. Um, you don't see anything like that in this story. Uh, there's no one dead uh, being positioned to look like they're just quietly sleeping in a basket. Uh, they're singing O Canada. Uh, so think about that as you go to bed tonight. That uh, in real life, cats die and they're made to look like they're sleeping for tips and whatever. Uh, but in this story, everyone's fine. Eh, books aren't always real. So, we learned that today. <laughs> 